Welcome back to Coast to Ghost. I'm Carly. And I'm Bee. And we're two friends that met each other working at Build-A-Bear a few years ago. And now we tell spooky stories to keep each other entertained. Happy New Year. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Oh my God. Merry all the things, I think. I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, happy holidays. Happy holidays. Um, how was how was your your our little break? It actually went a lot longer than we thought it would, but. Yeah. Um, it was good. It was good. Did a, you know, saw some fam, friends, turned 24. Yeah, happy birthday. Um, I'm a whole year older since the last time we recorded. You're such so, an old oh. lady. How was yours? You know, it wasn't bad. I did not see a lot of family because it's just me and Molly in this little right, tiny yeah. town that we live in. Um, but I wasn't at work, so it counts for something. That's always better. Yeah, yeah I wasn't at work either, so it was grand. Heck yeah, it man. It was grand. How is your, um, your 2022 so far? I feel like it's gone it's well okay. for both of us. Mm, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I've, this is okay. I feel like <laughs> I should make another PSA. Please wash your freaking hands, guys. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. Like, every second you get. Just wash your hands. Just assume there's germs and whatever on everything you touch. Assume everything is glowing neon red and you can't touch any of it. So just don't touch any just of it. Her. Also, if you feel sick, don't go outside, maybe? Possibly? Yeah. Yeah. No. I'm Stay speaking safe. as a Wyoming girl living in a <laughs> Wyoming town that just sent out a <laughs> notification that said we are threat level major for COVID. So... <laughs> That should be like a, you just unlocked, you said Wyoming girl in a Wyoming town. I was just going to make a new song for you. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. Just a Wyoming girl. Ew, that was so <laughs> gross. No, I loved it. I loved it. It was so good. I'm not, I don't even know if I can classify myself as a Wyoming girl. I've lived here for two years. Three years? Three years. Three, I think. Damn. Yeah, I think I think you're pretty set. I think I'm pretty set too. I mean, I yeah. Wyoming's fun except when it's being disgusting, which it is right now. So <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> also, apologies in advance that I sound like a frog because you know I'm not sick, and I know that like it goes <laughs> against everything I've said because everybody I deal with on a daily basis say they're not sick, but genuinely. I'm not sick. I just had to get a steroid shot in my ass yesterday. So I got oh, knocked the fuck for out for like 15 hours. Yeah. Love that for Yeah, it's great. Especially when your coworker does it. Super fun stuff. I love the closeness. I know. That? Nothing I mean, makes you closer than shooting needles in your butt. Exactly. It was <laughs> so much fun. So I'm excited to hear okay. your story. What do you have going on for me today? All right. So mine is just... It's a pretty, I'm going to say, standard case. Um, I don't I don't think it's super well-known. I know it's, I'm pretty sure it's pretty well-known in the Massachusetts area where it happens, but um, it, it'll make you a little angry because we live in a world where people judge people based off the color of their skin. Is it true crime or is it ghost? It's true crime. Oh, yeah. It's I'm already mad. I'm yeah. already upset. So, okay. I will get started. So, on December 18th, 1959, in Revere, Massachusetts, Charles Stewart was born. Um, so, after he graduated in 1977, he got a job at an Italian restaurant as a cook. That is where he met Carol DiMatti. 
Dima. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. You're doing Excuse great. Excuse me if I pronounce anything wrong. But Carol was born March 26, 1959 in Medford, Massachusetts. And she was a Boston College student at the time in 1977. And she was also working at the Italian restaurant as a waitress. So throughout the restaurant, Charles was known as like a, a ladies man. And all the women would just like instantly fall madly in love with him. So at the time, uh, Carol's dad was also working at the restaurant as a bartender, and he was like not a fan of Charles because he all Charles always had these ladies around him, and he was like, I don't want my daughter getting involved with like a man like that. But as story goes, Charles and Carol eventually got married in 1985. I love that for them. And they <laughs> and they moved to the town of Reading, Massachusetts. Uh, when. Once they uh, moved there, Charles got a job serving as a manager at Edward F. Caucus and Sons, which was a fur clothing manufacturer, and Carol was actually working as a tax attorney. So by 1989, the couple became pregnant with their first child that was due in December of 89. So a couple months before that, uh, in October, the couple was driving home from attending a birthing class at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And they were driving through the Roxbury neighborhood when they stopped at a stoplight and an African-American man with a gun with a raspy voice forced his way into their car and ordered them to drive to a nearby area of Mission Hill and robbed them and shot them. So he shot Charles in the stomach and Carol in the head. This is when Charles drove away and immediately called 911. And that's like where all the description of an African-American man with a gun raspy voice came to play but on this particular night uh the cbs reality show rescue 911 was riding with the boston emergency medical services and was actually able to take footage of the scene of carol and charles being taken out of their car and into the emergency like care it's so weird to me that you said that because you said this is like 1959 and like onward and i feel like that was so long ago but really it, it wasn't like media it really was wasn't, still yeah. a thing yeah um so this footage shows carol very pregnant being taken into the ambulance as well as charles trying to speak to the ambulance workers and very graphic scenes of him being rushed through the entrance of the hospital into the emergency room so again like charles was shot in the stomach carol was shot in the head and like there's just people flat out recording this i'd be mad a little bit i think if they were recording the worst moment of my life yeah yeah so, sadly, uh, Carol died a few hours after the shooting. So, the shooting happened October 23rd, and she died in the early morning of October 24th. Uh, shortly before her death, though, the doctors delivered her baby by C-section, who was, the baby at the time was too much premature. He was baptized in the ICU and given the name Christopher. But due to the shooting, he actually suffered oxygen deprivation, and 17 days later, sadly, passed away as well. That is tragic. I mean, imagine being... Charles is that his name yeah imagine being Charles and like having your wife die having a little glimmer of hope that like oh my son's okay and then being left alone like that like that's yeah gotta be so So grief yeah it's like a lot to handle like just the loss of like your two closest things in your life immediately gone um so Charles was hospitalized for six weeks and required two surgeries uh, the investigation actually started like 
the day the investigation started, this crime became super big uh, in Boston and kind of traveled throughout the country. That's why I said I've never heard of this, but it's apparently really big in like the Massachusetts area. So based off of Charles' statement, the case was amplified as what would happen to affluent people traveling through bad neighborhoods. So Mission Hill was apparently like not the best neighborhood to be in, and it's that's what the case uh, took to the media. I hate racism. Yep. <laughs> so the police initially asked uh, the doctors if Charles' wounds were self-inflicted, just run in the mill, you know husband wife the husband you know or the the spouses are always like usually the first people that they suspect so but the doctors said it was super unlikely that the wounds were self-inflicted granted charles was shot in the stomach yeah so the police uh began aggressively searching the male african-american population in the area to try and match the description that charles provided Based off of this aggressive searching, the police found William, or Willie Bennett, who fit the description. And on December 28th, Charles was able to identify him in a lineup as his wife's atta- him and his wife's attacker. Mm, I think that is extremely suspicious because, like I said, I mean, this is the worst moment of his life. There's so much adrenaline rushing. He probably just saw his wife get shot in the head. Mm-hmm. And like, I how credible is he? Any of this? Yeah, yeah. So that was December 28th, so this the shooting happened in October, but six days later, on January 3rd, 1990, this entire case just completely had a change, of course. So Matthew Stewart, Charles's brother, came forward and actually identified Charles himself as his wife's killer. Wait. He had... <laughs> uh, what? So... Charles, who was shot in the stomach, his wife next to him shot in the head. His own brother went to the police and said, my brother was the one that killed his wife. That is insane. So, Matthew admitted he met up with his brother the night of the shooting, and he had been told what he had been told was insurance fraud, so he took the gun and the valuables from Charles who at this point had already shot Carol and himself, and threw the items off the Pine River Bridge in Revere to make the appearance of the carjacking story. And based off of what Matthew said, the police searched that river area in items such as the gun and other personal items that were made to look as like a robbery were, were recovered. Oh my god. You're kidding. So, due to Charles's cover story of an African-American male um, in this seedy area, lots of tensions in the city of Boston rose because the police used tactics and aggressive searches solely conducted on the young male African-American population. Which, I mean, as soon as you said that there was a confession immediately you know that the cops are always like yeah let's go after that person and i realize that they have to go after all suspects and like kind of narrow down all suspects but i know that like from watching so much true crime that if it was a white male and he said oh it was a white male that robbed me the tactics would be probably completely Completely different different and less brutal and that is disgusting and, and it's sad that it's still going on today. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that I know I said earlier that the 1960s 
really wasn't that long ago, but like at the same time, it it kind of was and it kind of wasn't, and it's just like well, things should have changed by now. Oh yeah, human decency yeah. needs to be a thing. Yeah. So police uh, then tried to piece together a motive behind Charles's crimes, and they later learned from like family and friends that Charles was not happy with the idea of becoming a father. His main concern was he was worried his wife would not go back to work after the baby was born and worried about the family financially because his wife was a pretty... She brought in a good amount being a tax attorney. Charles, I know I said I felt bad for you earlier, but you are a little shit. Slimeball. Slimeball. (laughs) So reports also stated that Charles had started some sort of a romantic relationship with one of his employees, Deborah Allen, but she denied any romantic affiliation with him whatsoever, so that kind of, it was never confirmed nor denied. Carol's father was (laughs) correct this entire time. Yes. Listen to your dad, unless your dad went for milk and never came back. (laughs) Sorry, that was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) The Boston Globe reported that a $480,000 check was issued to Charles as a life insurance policy but no, from Carol, but no check of that matter was actually ever found. Um, the show Cold Blood did report and confirm that he received uh, and cashed a $100,000 life insurance check that like he uh, cashed right after he got out of the hospital. Then Paul K. Leary, the Suffolk county assistant da stated that a life insurance policy belonging to carol worth eighty three thousand dollars that named her husband as the beneficiary was cashed and a clock and gold jewelry worth 950 dollars was purchased by charles as well as he purchased a new nissan maxima for sixteen thousand in cash i understand Mm -hmm. why life insurance is a thing because god forbid a spouse that you actually adore and have nothing to do with killing passes away passes away yeah. but there's so many instances where murders are life insurance uh motivated yeah and that's yeah that just and it's sucks. so scary it's so scary i never i mean first of all i'm too poor for a life insurance policy second of all don't kill people for money yeah yeah it's it never works <laughs> it's a general out, rule of thumb don't do that yeah so hours after matthew came forward with this statement against his brother Charles met with his lawyer. Shortly after this, Charles's car was found abandoned on the Tobin Bridge in Chelsea with a note stating that he was beaten by the new accusations and that he had actually lost all of his strength. He then apparently jumped to his death off a bridge. The next day, his body was found in the Mystic River. Poetic. Fuck you. Cowardly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cowardly. So, the investigators had later learned from several friends and relatives that Charles had expressed interest to kill his wife long before that October incident. They also learned that several of Charles's brothers and sisters knew about his involvement in the murder before Matthew finally went and confessed. I have too much of a guilty conscience. Like, I love my sister to the moon and back, but if she was like guess what i did kill this person i would go to the cops like i love her i do scary but like murder not an answer to anything yeah and it was all because he just 
didn't want to be a father. He didn't want his wife to not go back to work. He, let me get this straight. He did it. He's the one that got her pregnant. And then he's like, yeah. uh, you know what? I'm going to kill you. Now, when I think about him sitting in a hospital being like, oh, my God, my son's barely alive. He's probably like, when won't you, like, when will you die? Right, right. Which is so sickening. So Matthew was then indicted for obstruction of justice and insurance fraud for his role uh, in the following year in 1991. Also, an associate of Matthew's, John McMahon, was also indicted as an accessory to murder. Uh, nothing I read really kind of went in depth about what this associate really had to do with it, but it was just stated that his associate was also found uh, guilty of this crime. Uh Matthew then pleaded guilty and was sentenced to three to five years in prison. He was released on parole in 1997, but then was again arrested on drug, tra- drug trafficking, but released when his case was appealed. On September 2011, Matthew was found dead in a homeless shelter in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's a little sad. Mm-hmm. Even though he helped. Yeah. Yeah, but still so i i feel i i feel like maybe it weighed on him a little bit more than it ever would have charles yes yeah charles just ended his life because he got caught yeah not because he was guilty yeah so carol's funeral took place a few days after her death as well as christopher uh had a private funeral a few days after his death and they are actually both buried under carol's maiden name which was dimani and not stewart good uh, Carol's family, in her memory, created the Carol Diamati Stewart Foundation to provide scholarship aid to Mission Hill residents and Maiden High School graduates. So Mission Hill is, again, that area that is apparently not the nicest area um, to be in. And so it focused on providing ch- kids in that area with a chance to go to school. So it looked to help students who show leadership ability, but also those who are not able for- to afford to go to college without some funding. I love Carol's uh, family. I just want to put that out there. Yeah. The foundation also provides uh, their grantees with mentors who are able to help them find internships to get long-term jobs. Uh, the best part about this is one of the beneficiaries is actually the daughter of William Willie Bennett, the man who was initially accru- accused of the crime. Uh, so he obviously did not stay in jail because they realized he was falsely accused. So, but... They gave his daughter as one of the beneficiaries of the Carol Diamante Stewart Foundation. Good. By early 2006, the foundation had awarded $1.2 million to around 220 students. Uh, The family's attorney explained that Carol would not want to be remembered as the victim of a sensational murder, but rather as a woman who left behind a legacy of healing and compassion. I love that. I, I mean, like, obviously, I wish none of this would have happened. But mm-hmm. at least the family, uh, yeah, made something that good. Carol's, yeah, Carol's memory, the memory of her will be looked at as the lady she was, and not how she passed away. I agree. Yeah, that's. Mm-hmm. But that is the story of Carol Diamati. I think that is the only story you've told with a semi-happy ending. Sort of. Just, yeah. Just, just a little <laughs> bit. Like, I mean, obviously stuff happens and it's really really sad but yeah at least the family mm-hmm. uh benefited well not benefited yes. you know what i'm saying but i'm doing great they're producing <laughs> some great some 
good positive into the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's mm-hmm. that's a good good portion of it. And I'm glad that William was freed because he was unjustly accused. Yes. Hey guys, here's a little break in between to plug some of our social media because we are still very much lacking in a website. Websites cost money and that is also something we're lacking in. So if you want to find us, you can follow us on Instagram at C2Gpod. Or if you have any spooky stories that you want us to include in an episode, the easiest way to get in contact with us is by email. That's going to be submissions at gmail.com. As always, if you're listening on Apple Music or Spotify, don't forget to leave us a review. So what do you have for us today? Mine's the complete opposite from yours. Mine is quite possibly one of the most well-known cases Ah. in the world. I don't even want to say in the United States. I want to say in the world. Hmm. True crime? No. Ghost. Yes. Yeah. So. Hmm. Yeah. Do you want to make a guess? I always guess with you. I know. I'm trying to think. Famous ghosters. Why is my every time you ask me questions, my brain just goes like completely <laughs> blank, and it's like I don't actually know how to speak. Dude, same. Hmm. No thoughts. Head empty. Yeah, head empty. <laughs> okay. So- Get, wait, wait. Give me a little hint. Mm. See if I can guess. No hints. Okay. Or you can. Well, it involves a house. Um, monster house. Yep, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> that movie actually scarred me as a child. Like, I love that movie. It's so graphic, like the point where really is. they're just like, oh, by the way, he encased his wife in cement in the basement. Terrifying. How is that right? a kid's movie? Like, don't know. I don't know. Don't know, but I ate it up as a kid. Oh, same. <laughs> it's why I am the way that I am today. That movie Probably. and Coraline. Like, come on. Oh, I, I've never watched Coraline no? full way through because it scared me way too much. I actually just, the last book I read in 2021 was Coraline. Ah, maybe I could read the book. Oh, ghost? No, but did you hear that? No. Okay, maybe it was a ghost. I don't know. Weird. (laughs) Okay. Oh my god. Let's get right into it. Yeah. So one hour outside of New York City is a quiet suburban neighborhood. It's lined with large oaks and littered with normal families that go to work in the morning and come home at night for a warm cooked meal. Everything in this particular neighborhood ran like clockwork day in and day out until the morning of November 13, 1974, when Ronald DeFeo Jr. lowered the tip of his rifle, still smoking at 112 Ocean Avenue. Anything? No. You don't recognize the name DeFeo? No. Hmm, interesting. So, DeFeo had just finished slaying his entire family in cold blood. Six family oh. members were shot point blank with a .35 caliber rifle, they were Louise and Robert DeFeo Sr., 18-year-old Dawn, 13-year-old Allison, 12-year-old Mark, and the youngest, 9-year-old Matthew. Still nothing? I have nothing. Hmm. Maybe I don't know as much as I think <laughs> No, you definitely know it. So this would later become one of the biggest cases in not only the Long Island area, but in the world. It's marked as one of the horror's original hauntings, or at least the start of one. This house and this family will forever be associated with what we know as the Amityville Horror. Ah, yeah. There you go. Okay. (laughs) Ryan Reynolds. (laughs) Ryan Reynolds. Is he in that movie? Yeah. Oh, the remake of it. Okay. Yes, yes, I've never seen, I've only seen the original. I'm a pure horror person. 
I've okay. honestly only seen the one with Ryan, like I, clips of the one with Ryan Reynolds. Honestly, think that would be the better one. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Oh, oh, interesting. <laughs> it's, I mean, it was made in the 70s, so it was an easy cash grab. It's the whole thing. Um, so it was 6.30 p.m. when DeFeo entered a bar right down the street from the house. He looked disheveled and had a panic p- uh, pinch to his voice. He stated, you gotta help me. I think my mother and father are shot. And this obviously caused a few people to stir, and a group of patrons followed DeFeo back to 112 Ocean Avenue. A man by the name of Joe was the one who made the initial call to law enforcement. At first, DeFeo stated that he believed the slayings were mob hits. It lined up because four of the six that were dead in the house were killed by single gunshot wounds, a common MO for hired hits. The police took Ronald to the station for his own protection at first, trying to get a good look at the scene. And it wasn't long before he started to have inconsistencies in his story. He confessed to the crimes the next morning and would go on trial for the murders on October 14, 1975, where he shockingly pled insanity. DeFeo claimed that he heard the voices of his family plotting against him and that he slayed them in an act of self-defense. He was sentenced to six sentences of 25 to life. Yeah, so I know that seems really, really fast because that's the whole murder. That's the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, But that is actually not where the Amityville ghost story starts or ends. It's where it starts. (laughs) So super fun stuff. The house at 112 Ocean Avenue had an instant dark cloud over it and was abandoned for a long time before the Lutz family saw its beautiful white paneling and large windows that would make for the perfect home. It was George and Kathy Lutz who purchased the home for $80,000 soon um, for $80,000 and soon moved in with their three children, Daniel, age nine, Christopher, age seven, and Melissa, age five. They also brought along the family dog by the name of Harry. Yeah. And I feel like um, I wanted to point out the way that this house is set up. It's gorgeous. Like, genuinely, the house is beautiful. But every time anybody sees a picture of this house, it is instantly like, yeah, that's the Amityville house. Uh, yeah, yes, it's so creepy. Because like, they put yeah, it on the skin. cover of everything. Like, literally everything. Or, like, some artistic rendition of it. It's, like, massive. So, it should be noted that the Lutz knew all about the murders that took place in the home. The real estate agent disclosed that from day one. They didn't see it as a problem, though, thinking that by moving in, they could create a new and positive energy within the home. Okay. If you were in that case where you're like, oh, this house is really nice, and then your real estate agent was like, oh, mass murder happened in here, just to disclose that with you guys, would you be like, okay, cool, or would you be like, ah, nah, I gotta go? No, I'd turn around and walk out. I don't care Me too. about anything. Like, at that point, I'm leaving. I don't care about the paneling. I don't care about the stained glass windows. Fuck you guys. Granite countertops. Exactly. Like, granite countertops. Nice. But no. <laughs> nope. That's, how, that's exactly how I would be, too. If somebody was like, ah, mass murder here, there's no way I'm even no. giving this house a second more of my time. Even if you don't believe in ghosts and, like, the spirit world, at least imagine the energy that's been created right, in that house. Right. It's it's yeah. insane. So they moved in on December 18th, 1975, which is less than a year after the murders took place. And Ooh, that's so gross. They settled in fairly well. Yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> I would never... So it was bigger than the home that they were in before, and every member of the family got their own space to make their own. It should also be known that the house looked 
like almost the same as it did when the DeFeos lived there. Their furniture was actually included with the home for an extra $400. And the Lutz had no problem paying for it because they were like, yeah, it fits nice. They were good home decorators. My jaw just dropped. Literally, like, why would you do that? Oh, like, oh. I can't, yeah. Oh, I can't even, I can't even imagine. It's insane. So the only person who seemed to have an issue with the history of the house was actually a good friend of George and insisted that they get their home blessed by a Catholic priest. And neither George nor Kathy were super religious, but they did find a priest by the name of Father Ray to perform the blessing of the house to ease everyone's mind. And not their own minds, because apparently they have no issue they with living here. They did not care. Yeah. Oh, I would get, like, every Catholic priest in my area to come in. Oh, right? But I wouldn't even be in that situation to need a priest to bless my house, because I'm not moving into a house that there was a mass murder in there. Exactly. So while performing the blessing of the house, the priest stated that he heard a deep and growling voice that demanded he exit the home. I should note that this was the DeFeo's, like, the matriarch his his room i forget his name it's ronald defeo ronald yeah (laughs) so this was his room and the priest ended up leaving in a rush and didn't tell the lutz family about it until his conscience got the better of him he called george on christmas eve of 1975 and told him to stay away from the second floor room if possible the call was stopped by an intense amount of static okay let's bring up the the topic of red flags because (laughs) red flag number one people died in this house they didn't just die they were murdered Mm -hmm. in the house red flag number two a priest runs out of your house runs out of your house correct like there's that's already strike two first of all first strike too much second strike you're gonna make me throw up like right you should get out of there and i should also bring up the fact that after that uh the priest that came and blessed the house became extremely ill so um i don't know if that was a coincidence but i'm gonna count that as a red flag right and actually um in the movie this was exaggerated i never read the amityville horror book but uh in the movie this is one of the most famous scenes in cinematic history where a priest is blessing a room and all of a sudden flies coat the full window i don't know if you've ever seen that ah uh, yeah, 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 yeah yeah so that i mean i'm not sure if that actually happened it i didn't read the book but you know <laughs> um so the house seemed to be fine for a while nothing happened though it was later stated by george that while nothing happened physically they each felt like they were living in a different house during this initial time yeah, super creepy. Like, everybody didn't feel like they were living in the same place. No. I mean, it was a massive house, to be fair. Um, but I think, you know what that makes all timelines are weird for them. What? Um, haunting of Hill House. Yes. The, the Red Room. How. Did you ever watch it? I did. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so you know what I'm like, the re- isn't that what's called the Red Room? I think so, where one was a tree house and one was like. One was like a dance studio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's God that show, love it. I loved it. It's so good. Ten out of ten. Watch it. (laughs) Ten out of ten. Wait, is that? That's not Hill House. That's um. No, it's Hill House. Oh, I'm thinking about Blind Manor too. Okay, the second one was Blind Manor. Yeah, the 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 one that made me uncontrollably sob and physically die inside. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, that one. Yeah, everybody loves a good haunted house story. (laughs) So. 
In the following weeks, things started to escalate for the Lutz family. Green slime would ooze from the walls. Odors akin to sulfur and rotten Red meat. flag. You said what? Red flag. Red flag. Red flag. Red flag. So. This is just like a <laughs> flag on the plate. Flag on the plate. Literally, everything <laughs> needs to stop at this point. It's insane. So they would also smell weird stuff like sulfur and rotten meat. And there were reports of eyes glowing and unblinking that could be seen from every window in the house. At one point, Kathy even claimed that she woke up a few feet off the mattress, levitating. You should see Carly's face right now. (laughs) I just don't know how you get this far. I don't even, even the eyes. Like, I have, okay, this is the weirdest fear of mine. I grew up in a kitchen where, right above the sink, there's a window. I grew up in a kitchen. I grew up in a kitchen. I slept in the washing machine. (laughs) The right cabinet. The The right cabinet. I mean, it was comfy. Listen, I had rats to keep me company. (laughs) That's why I have pet rats now. Uh, Anyway, there was a window over the over the sink and my mom didn't have any curtains up so every time I looked into the backyard it was just terrifying to me nothing was there literally nothing was there that I could see and there was stuff there. I mean like you just get like that foreboding feeling so imagine like actually looking out a window and something being there like that's yeah. not I couldn't and that would have I would have lost it right then and there there's no choice about it so. I have like the window next. I the window next to my bed. Um, at nighttime, I have like a digital clock on a uh, bookshelf, and there's like a little succulent thing with like Cute. it's like a Buddha succulent. But at nighttime, when all the lights are off and it's dark outside, the digital clock shines a light onto the window, which is right behind the Buddha succulent. So the Buddha reflects has like a reflects as like a looks like a person standing outside my window so the first time i ever saw it i was like oh my god there's somebody outside my window just go to bed just go to bed because there's no way i'm stupid enough to look outside and come in eye contact with somebody standing out my window but then i then after like two nights of me being generally like scared out of my mind i just moved the (laughs) succulent and i was like ah it's just the reflection so now every night i just have a a figure in my window and I know it's just my succulent. That's terrifying. Have you ever um, heard of like the urban legend about the hotel room with the key and the guy looks through the keyhole? No, but that's so scary. Yeah, so he looks through the keyhole and then he's like, I didn't see anything in there. He goes back to the hotel attendant and he's just like, there was nothing in there. It was just red and she was just like, that was someone's eye. Like, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I just got chills. Up. I know. I'm going to throw up, too. It's a it's a really classic urban legend. It's told, like, multiple times. But, you know, <laughs> super fun stuff. Oh, my God. Ew. Okay, go on with your story before I throw up. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, perhaps the strangest thing, George Lutch would awaken every night at 3.15 a.m., right around the time that Ronald DeFeo then killed every single one of his sleeping family members a few years prior. It was mid-January before the stress became too much for the Lutz family, and they left the house. About damn time. Right? As you should. And they actually never returned to the house. They left all of their possessions behind, which were mostly the DeFeo's possessions anyway. Right. And the movers that later cleared the belongings reported no type of paranormal activity in the house during the time there. 
so yeah super weird that's so eerie (laughs) i know i would have left too i mean they truthfully it wasn't until september of 1977 that the full story came out when author Jay Anson released his nonfiction book, The Amityville Horror, that became the basis for the 1979 cult classic that we all know today. It has transcripts of up to 45 hours of the Lutz's account of living in the house for less than 50 days. Christopher, who was seven at the time, did say that the hauntings actually occurred, but his father may have exaggerated a good bit of it. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe there wasn't green slime coming out of the walls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the thing. So the family was in severe financial debt at the time that Christopher said that George would actively try to summon bad energy in the house and attempt to get a good bit of media coverage. Two months. Psychopath. Exactly. Total psychopath. Like, you can't deny that people were murdered in the house, and there was probably right. a bad energy. But when you go in there with the intention of calling upon that bad energy psychopath yeah yeah it's insane two months after the let's moved out there was a reporter by the name of laura didio i'm probably butchering that uh who assembled a group of psychics and paranormal investigators to debunk the residents perhaps the most famous among them were ed and lorraine warren also they have their own hit fucking franchise too (laughs) So George and Kathy also got very close to the DeFeo's defense attorney. They were all being approached for book deals, so the three of them agreed to meet and discuss everything that went on. While it was stated, uh, while it started out calm, the trio had finished three bottles of wine by the end of the night, and according to the lawyer William Weber, there was this give and take, and towards the end, we all were creating ideas towards a horror book. And that is ronald defeo's lawyer plus the lutzes yeah so the man that uh, helped ronald defeo plead insanity by hearing voices in the house and then the two people who bought the house because people were murdered there wow yeah i love i love great parenting oh yeah it's fantastic (laughs) so there was a particular part of the night that william remembers the most the Uh, One of the biggest mysteries that surrounds the house on Ocean Ave would be the slime dripping from the walls. And the Lutz openly admitted to him that they were actually just spilled drops of jello. And Weber didn't follow through with the book collaboration, saying that it was nothing more than a commercial venture. So, did the children know that it was spilt jello or what? I feel like if they didn't know then, they probably know now. Right, right. But, um, like, how insane do you have to be to trick your children? Yeah. I mean, so, I don't even if know. that's what happened. I'm sure, as a child, I would be so freaked out if I lived in that house, you know? Like, so insane. Ooh. And I didn't really look into the Ed and Lorraine Warren portion of all of this in The Haunting, if they found anything when they brought all the psychics in. Because... I think Ed and Lorraine Warren are hacks. And I'm sorry to say it, but they are. (laughs) Fake news. They, I mean, I don't doubt that some of the places they went to were haunted and had an energy to them because I believe wholeheartedly in ghosts in the other world. Right. But at the same time, 
it's a little fabricated. It, I think some of it is a little fabricated. And I think at one point for the Warrens and most definitely for the Lutz, it became less about integrity and more about um, getting money out of all of this. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I have no doubt that some of the most famous cases that the Warrens worked on, like Haunting in Connecticut, the Annabelle doll, mm-hmm. all of that had some energy attached to it, just not as much as is portrayed in they media pers- today. Yeah, yeah, I'd probably agree with that. Yeah, it's insane. And also, yeah. Ed Warren was a very bad person. So, <laughs> 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 yeah, super fun stuff. Maybe we can do an episode on Ed and Lorraine Warren at some point. But Maybe, yeah. My God, back to the Amityville house. <laughs> This is when the Lutz family actually decided to move to California and they signed a book deal with Jay Anison. And no one expected it to be as big as it was, but it did sell six million copies. But wow. the Lutz family never fi- signed a full contract, so they actually only got $300,000 from the book. <gasps> yeah. That's what they get. <laughs> Honestly, probably. If you're going to pull off a scheme like that, might as well. Be jipped, yeah. <laughs> so as for Ronald DeFeo Jr., he later recanted his statement about hearing voices in the house. He said he wanted to create a better chance of an insanity plea, but ended up in citing a large paranormal investigation that drew attention away from the crime. He passed away in prison on March 12, 2021. And Oh, wow. Yeah, like- recently. Very, very wow. recently. Um, and yeah, he, he basically said that he never heard any voices and it was never like officially stated why he killed his family. But again, going back to your story, it was believed it was for the money, for insurance money. Of course. But why kill your entire family? That's just, you have to be absolutely insane to kill your entire family. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely insane. To kill anybody, as a matter of fact, but. I agree. So Kathy and George Lutz both passed away respectively in 2004 and 2006. Daniel Lutz did appear in a documentary about the hauntings in 2013, and Christopher spoke with Seattle Time about the incident, but wasn't with the family after his 16th birthday, as George was his stepfather and they did not get along. And then as for Melissa Lutz, the only girl in the family, she tends to stay out of the spotlight and now leads a normal life away from Amityville and the rumors surrounding it. Good. Yeah. And that is the story of Amityville, which uh, I think also is fake. So. Yeah. 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 That's crazy. Yeah. I think the levitating really, really sold it for me. Obviously the green slime. The levitating, the the green slime. Yeah. Yeah. Like I could, I could see like maybe you saw some glowing eyes. Like, right, you know, I like that could definitely because that could get be absolutely anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, the because weird there was some bad energy. Yeah, yeah. Like there, there has to be weird energy in the house. Somebody killed their, their family. There. Exactly. And there's got to be some sort of spirits still in there. Right. But they just took yeah, the haunted like, house and they ran with it way too far way way too way far too long and people yeah. are, are way too gullible and i get it i get it because do you because remember when paranormal activity were the gullible came out per- oh i i thought that was real everybody did right and like, it was insane i love it and when the fact that they like that. make they made it that like they made it to look real it is the epitome of found yeah. footage horror yeah that yeah. and the blair witch project 
Yes, that Both one is those. crazy good. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like this was the 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 literary equivalent of both of those, and it's just like okay, yeah. So mm-hmm. I mean, I will be honest with you. When I was researching this, I was terrified. Like the first half of it, I was like, "That's insane!" And then the more I got into it, and the more I was reading, the more I was like, "These people are fabricating all of this." Right, right, yeah. yeah. It just gets it like it hits the point where it's a little too hard to keep believing. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's insane. Well, um, thank you, everybody, for watching. I did, uh, I sent it to you, but I did receive a few uh, story recommendations. Yes. We will definitely look more into in future episodes. So if you are somebody who sent in a story idea, be on the lookout for that. We'll give you a shout out. Definitely. I think we should make that like a monthly thing of like, be like, hey. Yeah. You guys want to do this? Because email, we have an email, which is coast to go submissions at gmail.com. Um, but, but yeah, I did a little poll on yeah. my Instagram story. It's a lot easier on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So feel free to give our Instagram a follow. C to G pod. Uh, C, what is it? It's C to G pod. Yeah. Okay. That's a, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> give us a follow on our Instagram, C to G pod. Feel free to give us any story whether they're true crime or ghost stories that you would like to hear us talk about yeah absolutely and my 2022 goal is to make an actual website for us boop 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 (laughs) (laughs) woohoo all right thank you guys for listening peace